Coming up next on the Passion Struck Podcast. We are naturally inclined to pay attention to and focus on the things that are closest to us geographically and, and culturally and socially. And so there's kind of this mismatch between where our feelings naturally go and where we really have the most opportunity to do good. Welcome to Passion Struck. Hi, I'm your host, John R. Miles. And on the show, we decipher the secrets, tips, and guidance of the world's most inspiring people and turn their wisdom into practical advice for you and those around you. Our mission is to help you unlock the power of intentionality so that you can become the best version of yourself. If you're new to the show, I offer advice and answer listener questions on Fridays. We have long form interviews the rest of the week with guests ranging from astronauts to authors, CEOs, creators, innovators, scientists, military leaders, visionaries, and athletes. Now, let's go out there and become Passion Struck. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to episode 221 of Passion Struck, recently ranked as one of the top 40 most inspirational podcasts of 2022. And thank you to each and every one of you who comes back weekly to listen and learn how to live better, be better, and impact the world. And if you're new to the show, thank you so much for being here, or you would just like to introduce it to a friend or family member. We now have episode starter packs, which are collections of your favorite episodes that we organize into convenient topic to give any new listener a great way to get acquainted to everything we do here on the show. Either go to Spotify or passionstruck.com slash starter packs to get started. And if you love today's episode, we would so appreciate it if you gave us a five-star rating. Those ratings and reviews go such a long way and helping us expand our reach and improve the overall rating for the show. In today's episode, I will be speaking with Harvard professor, Dr. Joshua Green, who is an expert on moral judgment and decision-making. The goal of today's episode is to explore how people see charitable donations. Should these views be challenged? And would the effectiveness of charities raise greater funds for the charity sector in the future? We will explore the psychology of effective altruism and how most people give as a matter of personal preference, which favors decisions based on personal appeal rather than effectiveness. We will then explore the importance of effectiveness and why effective charities, ones that save the most lives and improve lives the most, are 100 times more effective than typical charities. Furthermore, we'll explore why ordinary people have the power to save and transform people's lives through effective giving and how we are beginning to understand the factors that encourage and discourage such choices. This episode is being released on Giving Tuesday, a day that focuses on giving back following Black Friday and Cyber Monday. Joshua D. Green is a professor of psychology and a member of the Center for Brain Science faculty at Harvard University. Dr. Green is the author of Moral Tribes, Emotion, Reason, and the Gap Between Us and Them. His honors include the Stanton Prize from the Society for Philosophy and Psychology and Harvard's Rosalind Abramson Award for Teaching. He has been voted as favorite teacher by several of Harvard College's graduating classes. Thank you for choosing Passion Struck and choosing me to be your host and guide on your journey to creating an intentional life. Now, let that journey begin. I am absolutely ecstatic to welcome Dr. Joshua Green to the Passion Struck Podcast. Welcome, Josh. Oh, thanks so much for having me here. Excited to talk to you today. Well, I'm excited too, because you're one of the most renowned experts on the psychology and neuroscience of moral judgment. And I wanted to start out today by asking you, how did those studies lead you to explore the psychology 
of effective altruism or effective giving? Well, so I came to psychology and neuroscience as a philosopher and my degrees, both my undergrad degree and my PhD are both in philosophy. And I was interested in understanding what's really right and wrong and why. And I, from the start, was partial to a school of thought known as consequentialism or utilitarianism. I really don't like the name utilitarianism and it has a lot to do with psychology, which is why I'll explain, but that's the more common name. But the idea is what's ultimately right and wrong is that which produces the most overall happiness, the most best quality of well-being and reduces suffering the most. It's about the quality of people's experience and the more good experience, the better, the less suffering, the better. And that's an idea that always made sense to me. But there are certain kind of objections to that idea having to do with things. Well, is it okay if you kill one person to save five people? And sometimes it seems like it is, and sometimes it seems like it isn't. And I spent a lot of time examining these kinds of moral dilemmas, sometimes known as trolley problems. And that was a lot of my early work. And that was interesting from a philosophical point of view to try to understand the psychology behind these tough cases. And it was also interesting, I think, philosophically to try to get underneath our intuitions. More recently, I wanted to get a little bit more practical and a little bit more applied and try to take some of the things that we've learned not just to study the idea of promoting the greater good and why it seems right sometimes and why it doesn't, but to focus on the cases where it just really pretty much seems like a good idea, at least to me and to a lot of people, and understand how we can do that better and what are the challenges and obstacles to getting ourselves to behave in ways to make decisions that are not only good for ourselves, but as good as possible for the world. And that, so that led me um, to, among other things, this research on charitable giving. Yeah. And I, uh, another question on those lines, why is whether or not it's good to give more effectively or to give at all a moral question? Well, so humans are not naturally impartial right? And humans, what we care about is very much bound up with our experience. So you can think of sort of ordinary human social life as living within a set of concentric circles, right? There's you, and then there's the people you're closest to, your family and your closest friends. And then there is the people in various sets of overlapping communities. It can be the people where you live or people who share your religion or other interests, the people in your nation, right? And then there can be the whole world full of humans or even other species, right? You might care about the well-being of animals. And these days, people are speculating about the well-being of artificial beings if artificial intelligence keeps advancing at its current pace, right? And this idea of these expanding circles or concentric circles goes back to one of my sort of leading lights, the philosopher Peter Singer, who argued that over time, human morality has been expanding, that people used to only care about their little hunter-gatherer band. And then we started living in larger groups and interacting with larger groups, but always with the possibility of fighting with the people outside the group. And we're getting closer and closer to this ideal of having full moral regard for everybody, right? And so that's where I see this research and that's what Giving Multiplier is about. Now, why is this a challenge? I think we are naturally drawn when it comes to our altruism, to our charity, to support causes that are personally meaningful to us and therefore emotionally salient. And this is certainly true for me. Wife and I, when we do our charitable giving at the end of the year, we want to support 
our local schools and we want to support the Boston Food Bank, which helps people in the Boston area near where we live, right? But then there are also these enormous opportunities to do good. But if you're a relatively affluent person living in a country like the United States, the greatest opportunities to help people are typically outside of the United States, just because the money goes so much farther there. To give an example that comes from the philosopher and researcher Toby Ord, to pay for training and keeping a guide dog to help a blind person in the United States can cost something like $50,000 or more. Whereas a surgery that can prevent someone from becoming blind due to a disease called trachoma, that can cost less than $100, right? If you direct donations towards trachoma surgery, as opposed to guide dogs in the United States, you can do something like a hundred, maybe even a thousand times as much good in terms of the number of people that you're helping to the same extent. Now, this is not to say that we shouldn't care about blind people in the United States. I absolutely think that we should, but I think it's at least worth placing some value on the causes that have these incredibly high impacts. And so what I've been thinking about is this tension between the personally meaningful cause, the emotionally salient cause, and the one that really has enormous impact. And that's what we've been working on. And I guess we'll get to it soon. That's what our Giving Multiplier project is about. Okay. You gave a great lead in there for the rest of the discussion today. And I'm going to start tackling this in different pieces. The first is I'm going to go back to Peter Singer. And in one of the papers that you wrote, Peter Singer poses the question, is it morally acceptable to allow a child to drown if the person going in to save them does not want to ruin their clothes? And Singer argues that to be the wrong conclusion. But then he went on to argue that affluent people have a comparable moral obligation to save the lives of distant children. And while some found that argument convincing, why did many more find it unsettling? And how does that relate to effective giving? Yeah. So I think in my experience, and I've talked about this with hundreds, maybe thousands of of students and other people, almost everybody gets the initial argument. So just to rehearse this in a little bit more detail, right? You're walking along and you're walking by a pond and there's a child who's drowning there and you could save the child, but you'd have to wade in with the nice clothes that you happen to be wearing. And depending on how fancy a dresser you are, that could be a couple hundred dollars or a lot more, right? Some amount of money that you could afford to give up, but that's not a huge amount for you. You could save that child's life, right? And almost everybody agrees that you should wade in and save the child, even at that financial cost to yourself, right? And then the question is, all right, so first, is that comparable to a child who is drowning in poverty, so to speak, on the other side of the world, a child who needs food or needs badly needs medicine that can protect them from intestinal worms, for example, or other things that might be even more life-threatening, malaria, right? And... You might say, well, in the case of the drowning child, you're the one who can save that person. Whereas with these children who are on the other side of the world, lots of people could, right? And then Singer cleverly says, well, what if there are a bunch of other people standing around the pond and for some reason they're not doing anything? Now is it okay for you to let the child drown? And almost everybody says, no, the fact that other people could help but are not, doesn't mean that it's okay for you to not help, right? And you go through all of the kind of quick arguments that come to your mind about why these two things are different. And Singer does a pretty good job, I think, of batting all those down. And then where I think a lot of people are left is, okay, but where does this lead, right? That is, there are 
you know, for practical purposes, there, there are infinitely many. There are more children or people in great need all around the world than you personally are ever going to be able to help or to save. So then the question is, well, where do you stop? Are you allowed to take a nice vacation instead of the cheapest possible vacation that you can take? Are you allowed to wear the clothes that you like instead of the simplest clothes that will keep you warm, right? And there's no very clean, easy answer to that question. And I think that that makes a lot of people feel uncomfortable, right? And if you ask Peter Singer himself about this, he's not a fanatic. You know, what he'll say is just do your best. Think of it as like a personal best kind of thing, right? Where one way to think about it is with how you manage your exercise or you manage your diet, right? You can imagine the physiologically optimal diet, right? Or the physiologically optimal exercise regime. But if you try to do that, and it's way too much for you, right? Then you're not going to stick to it and you're going to say the hell with it and you're going to be worse than if you tried to do something more moderate, right? So I think his approach and mine as well is try to do a little bit more good for the people who are in the greatest need in the world and the most helpable. And once that becomes comfortable or normal, then you could see if you can crank it up a bit. But you, But to go back to your question of why is this controversial? We have these competing motivations to use our resources for ourselves and for the people we care most about. And then when it comes to altruism and charity, we're more drawn to things that are closer to us. And so there's a tension there. But I think it is worthwhile for all of us to consider just how much good we can do and to not feel too bad about it if we don't do the absolute most that we in principle could do, because we're human and we're not born to be perfectly altruistic and perfectly impartial in our altruism. Get ready to supercharge your hiring experience with Indeed, our fantastic partner. We at PassionStruck are all about seeking smarter, more efficient ways to do things. And Indeed perfectly aligns with this philosophy when it comes to hiring. It's more than just a job site. It's a comprehensive platform that revolutionizes the way you find the perfect candidates. With its powerful matching engine and over 350 million global monthly visitors, Indeed streamlines the hiring process, bringing top talent straight to you. No more sifting through endless unqualified resumes. Indeed does the heavy lifting just for you. And what I love about Indeed is its ability to centralize all your hiring activities. From scheduling interviews and screening applicants to messaging candidates, it's all in one place. During my career, I've hired thousands of employees, and I only wish I had Indeed's efficiency and speed back then. And here's a fact that absolutely blows my mind. 93% of employers, according to a recent survey, say Indeed delivers the best quality matches over other job sites. That's quality and speed hand in hand. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash passionstruck. Just go to Indeed.com slash PassionStruck right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash PassionStruck. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I know all those discount codes are difficult to remember, so we put them all at PassionStruck.com slash deals. Now, back to PassionStruck. Hey, it's Jermaine from the Healing Time Podcast. Listen, I know you may not need this, but... I know you know somebody who's broken, somebody who has lost hope, somebody just down and out. Tell them that the Healing Time podcast is here. It is a new day. Let's get better together. 
altruism. Okay, well, that leads to the question, why is charitable giving less effective than it could be? Yeah, well, I think uh, the world is big and the world is complicated, right? And it just happens that some ways of solving problems are just much more effective than others. And there are some places where the problems are just much more amenable to low-cost solutions, right? For example, to give another example, Helen Keller International provides vitamin A supplements that can do an enormous amount of good and even save somebody's life. And at extremely low cost, right? For pennies or dollars per person. And there's just not anything like that in a country like the United States where you get so much value for a, a dollar of spending. So it's just what's out there in the world and what are the solutions that are available? That's on the objective side of what's out there in the world. And then on the subjective side, we go back to what I said before, where we are naturally inclined to pay attention to and focus on the things that are closest to us geographically and culturally and socially. And so there's this mismatch between where our feelings naturally go and where we really have the most opportunity to do good. Okay. Well, I now wanted to just take you through a couple questions on the psychology of all this. And yeah. the first would be, what are the motivations and cognitive processes that support altruism? So this is a good question. And this is something that we don't fully understand, but we have a pretty good framework, I would say. And I think that this question can be addressed at multiple levels, right? So at one level is the kind of ultimate explanation from a biological or evolutionary or cultural perspective, what mo motivates us to care about other people, right? And then there's the proximate story, that is what's going on in our heads. On the more distal side, the ultimate explanation side, the general story is that the, the most basic form of altruism is within kin, with people with whom we share our genes. And that is a biologically, I don't want to say encoded, but shaped tendency, because when you help someone who shares your genes, you can think of that essentially as your genes helping copies of themselves and other people. And that's familiar and maybe not so interesting. One level out is what we call reciprocal altruism. That is you do good things for other people, other people do good things for you in return. And this is what enables us to survive. When my hunting is successful, I share with you. And on days when I've got no food, you share with me and we're both able to survive. Next level out is sharing and cooperating within a community where it's not so much about, you know, I scratch your back, you scratch mine, but I'm a generally good back scratcher to this group and people in this group will generally scratch my back. And that's called indirect reciprocity. But that can still all be in the context of personal relationships. And then finally, and this is really unique among humans, is we can have a kind of symbolic relationship or kinship with people who we don't even know. And this is one of the innovations of the great world religions, right? So if you are a Catholic, you can go anywhere in the world and it's the same mass, right? There's a language and there's a culture that you understand and you have a kind of natural feeling of communion and coherence with people who might not even speak your language, right? So there are all these structures that basically enable us to survive and be cooperative. On a psychological level, these things are primarily driven by feelings. And it's really 
basic feelings, action and reward or punishment. When you do good things for other people, they do good things back for you. You get a positive feeling and your brain says, okay, great, do more of that. And we build up these kinds of habits. Anyone who's ever raised a toddler, in some ways you're dealing with a psychopath. Fortunately, it's a psychopath <laughs> who's cute and not nearly as powerful. But imagine if a toddler was eight feet tall and had access to guns, right? It would be a very scary situation. So what's happening when people get socialized is you create an environment in which the person learns to see positive pro-social behaviors as rewarding and anti-social behaviors don't hit your sister as punishing. Not necessarily very harsh punishment, but enough to adjust the behavior. But then we also have this capacity for reasoning, right? That we have feelings that say, do more of that. That's good. Don't do that. That's bad. But we also can engage in cost-benefit reasoning, not just for ourselves, but for the world. And sometimes that can lead us to behavior that does more good, especially if we're encountering a new kind of situation. And for all of us, I think the opportunities that we face in terms of charitable giving are fundamentally new. They're not new in the sense that you personally haven't heard of them before, but our biology and our culture is not designed for a world in which you can save the life of the stranger on the other side of the world by making a sacrifice that you won't even notice or think about a week later. And that's where our reasoning capabilities really shine, is helping us to adapt to new situations that we haven't either as individuals or as cultures or as a species had a kind of strong feedback loop. And they also are good for things where the goal is not just survival and self-interest, but actually doing something good for the world. Your values are not just how do I do what's best for me and my family, but how can I be someone who contributes to the world more generally our feelings may not be optimized for that. And that's where I think moral reasoning itself is very helpful, especially thinking about consequences. Yeah, I didn't realize the impact that social connections had on giving until I became the fundraising chair for something down here called the Warehouse Arts District, which in St. Pete, it was designed to create a district that as the city was exploding, you could keep the rents down to a point that artists could still thrive. Yeah. But w what I found was fundraising is extremely difficult. And as I started to look at some of the affluent families in the area, it's interesting because a lot of them have one or two zones of focus that they like to do. So it could be around children's programs. It could be around cancer research or something else. And you had to find specific groups that were tied to wanting to support the arts. And it begs the question, how does our personal connection draw us more to some charities than others? Yeah, well, so I mean, most people have experienced something like this. If you've ever had a loved one who died of a disease, let's say a cancer or a certain kind of cancer, you know, you may have felt, oh, I would love to contribute to research or care for people who suffered through what this person I love suffered through and maybe prevent someone from having this disease. That is is the kind of thing, right? Or if you personally benefit, it benefited from something. Let's say there was a time in your life where you were homeless, right? And someone helped you get out of that situation. It is extremely natural to want to, if you're back on your feet and have resources, to, to contribute to that. So uh, whether it's based on sort of sympathy or empathy with people who've suffered in certain ways or your own experience, or you may just be 
passionate about certain issues or things. You just love animals and you you want to help them thrive and save animals who are suffering. So I think it's things like that. Often people's direct or indirect personal experience and just aspects of their personality that we don't fully understand about why people are drawn to certain things and certain causes. Yeah. And one final question on this whole psychology aspect, and that is, I know throughout my lifetime, people always bring up the high overhead costs that some charities have. And one that just comes to mind to me is Goodwill. But there are many others where people tell you, don't give your money to them, give it to someone else because 7% of it goes to administration. But your research found that this overhead myth can be dispelled. Why is that? Yeah, well, the overhead myth can be dispelled because overhead isn't really what matters if you think about it, right? The way I I often ask people to think about this in terms of if you were running a business, right? A lot of the most successful businesses devote a lot of resources to research and development, to figuring out what are the problems that we can solve and how can we best solve them. And they don't pay their people the absolute minimum or hire the people who are willing to work for the absolute minimum. Businesses that want to have a good sustainable workforce over time, want to hire people who are exceptionally talented and exceptionally motivated and not always worried about whether they're going to pay the rent or be able to pay for the things that they want to pay for, like sending their kids to college and things like that. And businesses invest, right? And if you want to know how effective is this business, you don't ask first, are you spending a lot on your overhead, on your infrastructure, on your personnel? Instead, you say, are you turning a profit? Do you have a good plan? And if you have a, if you're making a good profit and you have a plan that makes sense and that's sustainable and that can grow, but it involves a lot of overhead, then you say, okay, great, that's a good way to do it, right? And it's exactly the same thing in the domain of charitable giving. I think that what's going on with overhead is people you know, emotionally. I I want to support the animals in the animal shelter and not the cost of the shelter, right? I don't want to be paying rent to a landlord. I want stuff going to cute puppies, right? (laughs) If you're actually running that business or or that organization, you know that overhead really is enormously important. And the organizations are in, in a better position to know how much overhead they need. This idea has actually been quite damaging to charitable organizations because they felt in the past that they had to fight to keep their overhead down so people would be willing to give, even if it was detrimental to the causes that they were supporting. But fortunately now people are getting over this idea and instead focusing on charity of effectiveness. That is for every you know $1,000 that you put in, what is the expected outcome based on the track record? And that's the thing. Do you miss the nostalgia and hilarity of the 90s TV sitcom, The Nanny? Join me, Amanda. And me, Joseph. Each week as we dish about every episode, character, and iconic moment from the show on our podcast, A Fine Podcast. With fun segments breaking down the scenes, memorable one-liners, and more is the ultimate destination for fans of Fran Drescher and the Sheffield family. Follow and subscribe now on your favorite podcast app or YouTube. We're on video, too. To laugh along with us every week. Your inner 90s kid is calling. Tune in to A Fine Podcast today. It really matters. Yeah, well, that's where I want to go for the rest of the interview. I did want to mention that as I was prepping for this, I happened to watch a TED Talk that was given by Dan Pilata, who's a well-known speaker and author in the charitable giving space. But I was drawn to it because the TED Talk was titled, The Way We Think About Charitable Giving is Dead Wrong. 
-hmm. but he basically cites the same thing that you said that he feels they should be treated more like a for-profit organization in order to generate as much profit as they could because the better run the charity is the more it will be able to put money towards the causes it's supporting yeah no i think that makes sense assuming what you mean by profit is where profit in this case is the benefit that the charity produces for the world right yeah I've, I've, yes I've, yeah yes exactly yeah so you brought up these highly effective charities what are some of the common characteristics of those that are highly effective versus those who are not so a framework for thinking about this is important, neglected, and tractable. So important basically means big, right? That is, is this a big problem that we're trying to, we're trying to solve? There are thousands of, of people, many of them children every year who die from malaria, for example, right? And malaria is a preventable disease. That's on a huge scale, right? And that's much more effective to do something that can help thousands of people as opposed to a cause for a single person, even though single individuals tend to be much more motivating, right? It's always much more effective to tell the story of a single person. And it's good that we have those interpersonal feelings, but bigger problems are bigger problems, right? So that's one. Then there's this issue of neglected, right? So if everybody is already putting a lot of money into something, and this happens a lot when there's a kind of emergency, right? So there was a, the, a, a tsunami that does terrible damage and there's a rescue effort and money may come pouring in from all over the world. And that's great. And the, the, that region needs it, but it can be far more than people can put to good use. And there can be chronic problems that are ongoing where you actually do still more good per dollar solving this problem that's always there than you do by addressing this emergency. This sort of overflow of funds during an emergency is like one end of the spectrum when it comes to what's neglected or not. But then there are other things that are always there and that they're neglected because, especially because the problems are in places that are not where the charitable funds are originating. That's probably the single biggest reason. And then tractable, right? So there are some problems that we really don't know how to solve, right? But there are others where we have pretty good solutions, right? So to come back to the example of preventing malaria, long-lasting insecticidal malaria nets um, have been shown through controlled experiments to do extremely well. And this has been rigorously tested where the nets are distributed in this set of villages that were randomly selected. And then you have a randomly selected control where they're not. And you can see over time how many cases of malaria are there, how many deaths are there. And for the amount of money that a, a person in the United States with some disposable income can afford to give, you can save somebody's life. It probably costs about $5,000 of distributing malaria nets to save someone's life. Now, people often think I should say that it's much cheaper to save somebody's life. You maybe have seen people on TV say, oh, for $100 or $10, you can save somebody's life. But that's not exactly accurate. It's true that a treatment that's very inexpensive could just happen to be in the right place at the right time to save somebody's life. But in practice, you have to give out a lot of malaria nets in order to produce the effect where someone's life ends up being saved. But that's for real. That's real hard scientific evidence behind that. And you can do that either yourself or teaming up with a relatively small number of people. And this is the Against Malaria Foundation is one of the charities that we support. So you want big problems that have big effects on lots of people. You want problems that are not everybody's rushing to, to help on that with their funds. And then ones where you have 
good, well-validated methods for addressing the problem. I wanted you to go into how you came up with the givingmultiplier.org site, because it's really a testing lab for you for yeah. some of these ideas. But I thought for the audience, this would be a good overview, and then I'll ask you some specific questions about it. Yeah, great. For many years, I had thought, as someone who's interested in this, these philosophical questions, but also people's psychology and decision-making, how can I encourage people to give and give more effectively with their with their resources? And I tried at first using in, in experiments, presenting messages to people and seeing what they do, trying to convince people the way I was convinced. So I was convinced by that Peter Singer drowning child argument, right? That yes, of course, if I have an obligation to save the child who's drowning right in front of me, why don't I have something like the same obligation to save a child who's drowning on the other side of the world. And we did experiments like this, including a project in which Peter Singer was one of the team members. And what we found is that this works either not at all or a little bit. Some people respond to this kind of message. I'm one of them, but not everybody does. And so then I started thinking, okay, well, is there a completely different approach here? And at the time, I just brought on a new postdoctoral researcher, a brilliant guy named Lucius Caviola. And we were talking about this and we hit on this other idea. Instead of saying to people, this is what you should do, instead of what you're currently doing, which is implicit in that, I say, what if we just ask people to do both? You say, okay, you already give to charity. Great. Give to the local animal shelter or whatever it is that, that you love. But why not also give some of what you're planning to give to a super effective charity? To give another example, deworming treatments. This is medicine that, that kills parasitic worms in people's digestive tracts. And these parasitic worms have devastating effect in, in, in Africa and Asia, often on children. For less than a dollar, you can give somebody one of these deworming treatments, right? You can have over a thousand children aided by this by giving something like a thousand dollars, right? Even more than that, right? Sure, give to the local animal shelter, but also how about paying for 500 deworming treatments, right? Which is just huge benefit to people. And we did some experiments and we found, okay, people actually are quite happy to do this split. So we did one, one experiment where the control condition is you pick your favorite charity and then you have to choose between giving to that or giving to deworm the world. And then in the experimental condition, we gave people three choices. We said, you can give everything to your personal favorite charity, everything to deworm the world, or you can do a 50-50 split. And we found that over half the people we're willing to do the 50-50 split and that more money overall went to the super effective charity that can help hundreds of children with a relatively modest donation. More went there when people were given that split option. And then we did some further research to try to understand the psychology behind this. And the short and long of it is, is, is related to what I said before, is that you have your heart in your head, right? Your heart is saying, yeah, about those the animals at the shelter down my street. But what's interesting there is the amount that you give is not so important to you there emotionally, right? You want to give something. And so if you scratch that itch with something, but leave some money for the super effective stuff, then you get this other kind of satisfaction of doing something really smart and effective that's backed up by the best research and has the biggest impact. So people like having that heart head kind of compliment. And then we thought, okay, well, you know, we could publish a research paper saying, hey, people should do this, but not everybody reads psychology journals. How, how can we get this to go bigger? And we thought, well, we can advertise it and try to incentivize it. So we did some further experiments where we asked people, we said, hey, and if we'll add money on top to both of your donations, the one you picked and the one we recommended, if you do this, and we found people really like, that's not so surprising. 
But then the question was, okay, but where's that money going to come from? And we did another set of experiments where we asked people, okay, you just agreed to make this split donation and you just got some money on top. And would you be willing to take some of the funds that you gave to this highly effective charity that until 10 minutes ago, you'd never heard of and put that in the matching fund so that other people can do what you just did. And we found that not everybody, but a fair number of people were happy to put money into the matching fund in this kind of pay it forward way. And it turned out that people were putting enough into this matching fund to pay for the matching funds that would go to other people. So we thought, well, maybe this would work in the real world. Lucius and his web designer friend, Fabio Kuhn, and some other people put together this website called Giving Multiplier. And we're able to do this in partnership with a wonderful organization called every.org, which allows people to have an account and use it to donate to any charity that's registered in the United States. So they provide the kind of back-end platform and then Giving Multiplier directs people's donations through that. So Giving Multiplier essentially does what we were doing in these experiments. So if you go to the website, you pick your own personal favorite charity, or you can pick different ones on different rounds if you want to use it multiple times, right? And then you'll see a list of super effective charities that work in different cause areas. So some of them I've already mentioned, the Against Malaria Foundation, Deworming, Helen Keller International, which provides vitamin supplements and things that can prevent people from going blind. And then there are highly effective charities that promote animal welfare. And then there is a charity, for example, that is devoted to doing research to prevent the next pandemic or a, a climate charity that is devoted to, among other things, research on energy producing technologies that are low carbon, that are really going to solve the sustainable energy problem. So we've got those set of charities. You pick one of those, then you decide how much you want to give total. And then you use our little slider to decide how you want to allocate it. And the more you give to the highly effective stuff, the more money will add on top. And right now for a 50-50 split, this can change. We're adding 50% on top if you have a access code and we have created an access code for PassionStruck. So you can either enter PassionStruck, all one word, where there's an option to put in the code, or you can go to giving multiplier, www.givingmultiplier.org slash PassionStruck, all one word, and it'll automatically load up. So then you've got your matching code, you get your matching funds. If you decide to give all to the highly effective charity, we'll match your donation dollar for dollar. And then you can put that through. And then before you finalize your donation, you have an option to support the matching fund, or you can support the matching fund directly. And so the nice thing about this, again, is you get the best of both worlds. You can support any charity that's registered in the US that you're passionate about, but you also get a taste of doing something that is some of the most highly effective things that you can do with your charitable donations. And then we add money on top to both of those things. So it's win-win all around. And then as long as people keep supporting the matching fund, we can do it. And so far, this whole thing has been self-sustaining and we are close to raising $2 million since we launched in 20. Get ready for an uplifting experience with Coached Soul. Join us as we bring you the dynamic duo of Steve Hudgens, a licensed professional counselor, and Kenya Evelyn, a transformational leadership coach. Together, they'll guide you through engaging episodes filled with valuable insights and actionable tips on mental health, relationships, self-care, emotional well-being, and personal growth. 
Coached Soul is your go-to podcast for empowering discussions that will help you thrive, where we aim to empower and uplift you on your journey towards personal growth and well-being. Remember, as you navigate through life, you don't have to do it alone. We encourage you to reach out to professionals, seek support from loved ones, and take the time to prioritize your own well-being. Stay tuned for future episodes filled with even more valuable insights and actionable tips. Remember, you have the power to thrive. And with Coach at Soul by your side, anything is possible. Until next time, take care, stay empowered, and keep shining your brightest light. For more information, contact coachedsoul.com. Yeah, that's awesome. And what really intrigued me about everything that you're doing is so much of the prior research that's been done on giving has been focused on the quantity of giving. I think your whole premise here on the effectiveness of the results of it is really a dramatic switch. And thank you for that code. I'll make sure I put it in the show notes and everywhere else so that we get people, especially since it's Giving Tuesday, yes. to check out this platform. And I like that you can allocate part of it to something that you might have an emotional appeal for. And then, as you said, the other side to these highly effective charities. Yep. Yeah. So we're excited for Giving Tuesday, and we hope this will put us over the $2 million mark. So I wanted to ask as a follow-on to that, how do you systematically measure the cost-effectiveness of altruistic endeavors with the goal ultimately of how do you do as much good as possible? For a lot of the charities that we're supporting, we are relying on an organization called GiveWell. It's a really interesting group, and they've been enormously effective and influential. So it was started by two hedge fund guys who spent all of their time researching investments and figuring out where are the good investments? Where should we park our money? And then when it came time to to give some of the money that they had amassed away, they were struck by how there was no one doing the kind of research for that that they were doing in order to figure out how to invest their money. And so on the side, they started researching charities to try to figure out where do you get the most bang for your buck in terms of charities. And they started telling their friends about it and people like that. And then other people really were interested in this and they wanted to give as effectively as possible as well. Eventually, this became so involved and so many people were interested. They started this organization called GiveWell about 10 years ago that is devoted to figuring out, to doing the research to figure out which charities save the most lives or improve human lives the most per dollar. And this has been going for about 10 years. They have moved hundreds of millions of dollars to highly effective charities. And we are relying on their research. They have a great research team of, of at least a dozen people, maybe more at this point, just doing this work full time. There are other causes where it's about long-term things in the future, right? So if you're trying to prevent a nuclear disaster, although we don't have nuclear on our site at the moment, trying to prevent the next pandemic, obviously you can't do controlled experiments where you, how many (laughs) pandemics happened when we did this? How many pandemics happened when we did that, right? So there what you're doing is you're looking towards a really big, terrible event and saying, is it reasonable to think that there is a small but significant chance that these efforts could, uh, prevent or mitigate the negative effects of something like that. So when you're dealing with things like sustainable energy or dealing with things like pandemics, it's more of a rigorous quantitative scientific analysis, but it's not based on a controlled experiment because it's not the kind of thing you can experiment with. 
And then when it comes to animal charities, we're relying on research from animal charity evaluators who are focused, again, on most bang for the buck. And there, I think the big shift is most people who support charities that help animals, it's mostly geared towards companion animals, right? The kinds of animals that we love personally. But most of the animal suffering in the world takes place through human food production. And you don't have to be a vegan or a vegetarian to think that there should be, that the conditions in facilities that produce the food that we eat should be humane, right? And, or at least as more humane than they currently are. And so animal charity evaluators are focused on charities that are either making conditions better for farm animals, for agricultural animals, and there's a lot of room for improvement there, or looking for ways for people to happily eat less meat, right? So the Good Food Institute, for example, is devoted to creating meat alternatives that people really, so that they don't feel like they are sacrificing any, anything, right? And again, this has this kind of heart-head duality to it, right? Is that if you can find a way to offer people something that they want, that they like, that's in the service of this good thing, that can be so much more productive and scalable than trying to sort of fight against people's natural instincts when it comes to their food consumption. We don't do the research ourselves. We're very small and we're relying on what we see as the best organizations for assessing the effectiveness of charitable causes. Okay. And so I, just so I understand this, so you all look at GiveWell and you look at who they're recommending as the most highly effective ones, and that's who you're putting into your ecosystem. Yeah, that's right. For some of the, for the global health and poverty charities, that's correct. And we're somewhat selective. We choose a balance of things that we think will appeal to people with different interests uh, and are, that are more likely to appeal to a wider group of people than maybe some other organizations would. But yes, but they're all considered to be highly effective by those organizations. Okay. Uh, another topic I wanted to ask you about is in one of your papers, you bring up favorite effective bundling versus micromatching. Yeah. What is the difference between the two and what have you found is more effective? Well, what we've really found is that they're super effective in combination. Those are technical terms. I can see you did your homework and read our paper, but those are actually technical terms for the fundamental elements in the Giving Multiplier website. So bundling is asking people to split, is saying instead of just picking one charity, split between one that you really like and one that the research says is super duper effective. So we call those favorite effective bundles, right? So that's the first part. But then Giving Multiplier works because we can advertise it and say, and if you do that, we'll add money on top of your donation. And that's matching. Now, normally matching, you've probably seen different charities have matching campaigns. If you give now, we will add, an, a, it will double your donation or whatever it is. That the conventional kind of matching works where you have a donor who in advance has said, I will put up this money and then other, and that's a range in advance with the charity and then other people can respond to that matching offer. We are doing, we call this micro matching because anyone who donates through Giving Multiplier has the opportunity to become a micro matcher that is to contribute to the matching fund. And we have gotten some fairly big donations through the matching fund, like directly to the matching fund. And those are great. But most of our matching donations still have come from regular people who are just using the site. And there's a really beautiful pay it forward, virtuous circle here where use the site and they get money added on top of to the charity that they chose and one that they chose from our list. And then they say, okay, great. I'm going to take some of that money and I'm going to put it 
into the fund so that somebody else can do the same thing. And to our amazement, this whole thing has been self-sustaining. We were prepared when we launched this to shore it up with some outside money, and we may have to do that at some point. But so far, we've been just amazed at how much our regular users have been excited to support the matching fund. But I also don't want to discourage people from using the site who don't want to add to the matching fund. You shouldn't feel like you have to. Giving multiplier requires both types to work, right? We need some people who really like the idea of supporting this whole system. And we need some people who are drawn in by the opportunity to get that support for the charities they're coming in, in with and for the ones that they learn about. So we love having both types of users, the people who support the fund and the people who are just getting their first taste of effective giving. And we say, great, and we're happy to add on top for that purpose. Yeah, well, one of the... People I'm going to have to introduce to this is a gentleman I had on the podcast a while back named Jeff Walker. You may have run into him because he was an adjunct professor at Harvard, but what people have known him for is he was the vice chairman of J.P. Morgan Chase for many years, ran their private equity division, but was ahead of their charitable organization. And now he's part of the Giving Pledge, but he has devoted his life since retirement to focusing on systems change through charitable giving. And so I've never seen someone who's on more boards than he is, yeah. but he's been pursuing everything from being on the UN's envoy to Africa and figuring out how do you solve for some of the biggest problems happening in Africa, et cetera. But he talks very much in terms of what we really need is systems change if you want to bring about some of the biggest things to happen to these underprivileged populations globally. So I think this would be right up his alley. Yeah. Uh, and the other one I'm going to introduce it to is Jean Olwang, who is also on this show. If you're not familiar with her, she runs uh, Virgin Unite, which is the philanthropical arm for Richard Branson. But she's also looking at this whole power of partnering and how through partnerships, it has this overwhelming effect on increasing the efficacy that giving can do because of the partnerships that are formed and how people align. And I use those two as a lead-in because when we think of giving, we often think of the very affluent. And Sir Richard Branson, obviously, is one. I had Bernie Marcus on the show, who was the founder of Home Depot recently. He's given back a couple billion. We think of the Gateses, Jeff Bezos, etc. But a lot of your research shows that ordinary people can do tremendous good. So all this is leading up to how can ordinary people do enormous good? Yeah, no, that's right. I think, and it's hard to get your head around. When you think of, for example, the deworming treatments that cost less than a dollar each, right? If you imagine if you went into a classroom of children who were suffering because of parasitic worms, and there were 30 kids in that class, and you spent less than $30, right, treating their infections, you would feel so good about that. And that's 30 bucks. And you're not going to be able to walk into the classroom and see that from afar. But for $30, not a huge donation, you can have that kind of, of, of impact. It is really astounding how much good an ordinary person can do if you choose the right 
charities. As you said before, amounts versus effectiveness, you would have to work pretty hard to say, okay, I'm going to double my giving this year. If you pick the same charities you've been giving to, but you're going to give twice as much. But by choosing charities that are more effective, even for part of your donation, you can multiply your effectiveness by an amount of an order of 10 or an order of a hundred times. And that to me, it's so strange and mind-blowing, but it's so satisfying once you get into it and see what you can do. Yeah. I found those studies that you did that showed that there was a diminishing return for increasing allocations to your favorite charities. Pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah, that was part of the, yeah, that's in the research there. And I didn't get into all the details there, but that's right. Exactly. Is that you can scratch that itch, but then do even more good by using some of your resources to, uh, to do high impact giving. Okay. So I just want to touch on this again. So if the audience goes to givingmultiplier.org and that's G-I-V- ing multiplier.org and then they put in the code passionstruck that unlocks for them the opportunity to have a multiplier put on the donation that they they make on the site yep that's right and so the giving yeah the, the matching amount goes up a bit and so you get even get even more bang for your buck and again that is yeah you said giving multiplier.org passionstruck all one word Okay. And do you have to do that as a slash or is it just a code that you put on when you go to the site? Uh, you can do it both ways. You can do it givingmultiplier.org just, and then slash, just write passion struck all one word. Or when you get to our little slider where you allocate your funds, you can just put passion struck all one word in the little box for the code there and you'll get your matching increase. Well, Josh, thank you for coming on today. I think this was perfect episode for Giving Tuesday. And so I'm glad we could throw this one together so quickly. Great. Um, yeah. I'm excited about it. And I'll report back and see how the Passion Struck o- o- audience did. We've had some incredibly successful promotions with great podcasts. And you know, I'm excited to see what this group ends up, up doing. Yeah, I am as well. Well, thank you so much for being on the show and can't wait in the future to interview you again downstream once you write your next novel. Thanks very much. Okay. Well, thanks for having me on. It's been a great pleasure and happy holidays to you and yours. Thank you. You as well. I thoroughly enjoyed that interview with Dr. Joshua Green, and I wanted to thank Joshua for giving us the honor of interviewing him. Links to all things Joshua will be in the show notes at passionstruck.com. Videos are on YouTube at John R. Miles, where we have well over 400 of them for you to look at, some with exclusive content that you only find there. Advertiser deals and discount codes are in one convenient place at passionstruck.com slash deals. I'm at John R. Miles on both Instagram and Twitter, and you can also find me on LinkedIn. You're about to hear a preview of the Passion Struck podcast interview that I did with Wendy Smith and Marianne Lewis, where we discuss both and thinking, embracing creative tensions to solve your toughest problems. Strung for more than 20 years of pioneering research, they provide tools and lessons for transforming these tensions into opportunities for innovation and personal growth. We found four categories of paradox that we see again and again, and they're certainly interwoven and connected, but I would call them out as we call them paradoxes of performing, learning, belonging, and organizing. We do see these all over the place. One of the reasons why we unpack these different types is not because somebody has to say, oh, I'm experiencing this tension what type of paradox is it? One of the reasons we unpacked it is to say, actually guys, these paradoxes show up everywhere in so many parts of our lives. And let's just remind ourselves how pervasive this is. Remember that we rise by lifting others. So share this show with those you love. And if you found this episode useful, 
on charitable giving, please share it with somebody else who can use the advice that we gave here today. In the meantime, do your best to apply what you hear on the show so that you can live what you listen. And until next time, live life passion struck.